you know, every sport that I've worked in, there's always been a lot of work done on, you know, referee analysis, understanding what their traits are. How do they like to be spoken to? How do they like to be addressed? Body language. You know, what what rules are they particularly hot on versus others? What are their preferences? You know, all, all these sorts of things that you can then you can then practice in training, even if it seems uncontrollable. It gives you a sense of I'm doing everything I can. Hi there, folks. It's Steve Ingham here and a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. So I'm a sports and performance scientist and have supported athletes throughout my career towards the podium and have led and developed high performance teams, both in sports and in business. And in this podcast, I speak to Olympic champions, Formula One drivers, top level sports coaches, researchers breaking new ground, and some of those people that are in the background of a performance, those people that have real deep insight because they're supporting others to perform. And so I really hope the conversations that we have in this podcast can help you draw some inspiration, maybe move you to action, or just help you reflect and think about some of the challenges the things that you might want to work on in the future. This week I spoke to Mike Hughes. Now Mike is a performance analyst, having worked with some of the best teams in the world and developed them by providing understanding and insight based on deconstructing and exploring phenomena in training and performance. Mike and I worked alongside each other at the English Institute of Sport, though on different teams. So Mike worked with the British cycling team in the years that it went from pretty mediocre to utterly dominant. He's worked at Insight Analysis, where he was assigned to the England rugby team. Well, you may have seen him alongside the England coaching team, where Mike was beavering away, crunching on numbers, on hand to feed directly to the coaches in the heat of battle. You see, performance analysis has risen in prominence in the last few decades. Nearly every top team has analysts at the heart of their backroom teams. What is interesting about the discussion with Mike, though, is that he creates the case that insight is all very well. But if you haven't got the relationship with the coaches and leaders to have that conversation that could potentially precipitate change, perhaps develop change away from their preferred way of working, then analysis stays as just that, an unused data point. At the very heart of performance analysis is the saying, why guess when you could know? But as Mike illustrates, a deeper question is, now you know what needs to be different, but do you know how to make a difference? So, Look, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's amazing to connect with you. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for this intro. Um, you're you're like um, you're like performance analysis royal lineage, aren't you? You're, <laughs> you're like, like, is it like being if, sort of it, Darwin's yeah. son? <laughs> yeah, we we sometimes think of it like more like Star Wars, Star um, Wars. and. <laughs> My old man's the emperor, and uh, that potentially makes me Darth Vader, which I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Can you give us? He that, was a goodie in the end, wasn't he? Give us that context then. So just just give us the background your, about your your old man. Yeah. So my uh, my father was the first professor in the world in performance analysis, um, and he he started the the undergraduate courses at the John Moores back in the nineties. Then moved to UIC um, in the late 90s and, and started an undergraduate course in performance analysis there. Then set up the first master's in the world in performance analysis out of UIC. And then that has been, you know, the pathway for many analysts throughout throughout the world now to go through UIC back in the day. And then now there's a, there's a number of different MSc courses um, all over the country um, sort of on the back of that. So um, my my school holidays were spent doing analysis projects um, for my dad at UIC rather than working in a pub or in a bar or, or whatever. He'd pay me to help collect some data for, you know, some of the clients that UIC had back in the day, which was like the WRU, the Welsh FA, England squash, Welsh squash, Welsh lacrosse. They had loads of different contracts. So um, I'd spend my summer holidays doing bits of work for him, which is how I sort of got into the industry, how I was sort of groomed in a, in a way to, to work the in the industry anymore is it but i mean i ground no. <laughs> um, upon these days there's there's uh there's a heritage where there's a farmer 
takes, you know, the, the farmer's son takes on the farm or, you know, there's that sense of it's been mm. in the family that, that long. Um, and when, so when you got to university and they said, oh, you know, we're all looking for work experience. And you said, well, I've got 10 years experience. I've been doing this since I was eight. <laughs> was it a bit <laughs> yeah. like that for you? <laughs> um, it was, yeah, it was an interesting one. It's funny because, um, Chris White, who was head of analysis at EIS, is now head of analysis at the LTA, he was on my undergrad, Birmingham together. And he said, oh, you know, what, what are you going to do when you finish your degree? And I was like, oh, I'm going to go and do an MSc at UIC in performance analysis. He's like, oh, what's that? So I explained it to him. And as you say, explained some of the work that I'd sort of done previously. He's like, oh, all right, that sounds cool. Sign me up. So rang my dad, got him signed up as well. And then that's that's sort of how he got into it. And um and, and like you say, I had sort of quite a clear idea of the, the direction I wanted to go and what I was going to do um, and had that sort of experience. So yeah, I was lucky in some ways that I had a sort of quite a clear plan and clear path that not, you know, people going to university don't always necessarily have. Um, and, and, you know, quite a clear vision of the, the, the very niche, very niche sector that I wanted to get into and that I knew was sort of growing in sport and that, that I was interested in and suited the undergrad that I did in, in maths and sports science. Yeah. Okay. So there wasn't any particular pressure from your dad or, or there wasn't that pushback from you in that sense of just, Oh, I just don't want to do what dad does. Um, no, he never, he never, you know, put, put pressure on me necessarily to go down that route. It was always something I, I was always interested in sport, play loads of sport growing up. Squash was my, my main sport as a kid. Um, I played to sort of a, a reasonable level and then coach to a, to a reasonable level as well, which definitely helped my analysis. Um, but I played, you know, football, rugby, you know, tennis, you know, all, all the all the stuff that you normally do at school. And sport was the main thing that I was interested in. I also liked maths and chemistry and physics and, and that side of it. Um, and was always interested in that and enjoyed numbers and like the the, the cleanliness of equations and things like that. And didn't you know, I didn't uh, engage as well with, you know, English language, English literature, the arts and, and that side of it. So I was always that way inclined, which, again, is probably, you know, a byproduct of spending too much time. My, my old man, whose PhD was in fluid mechanics. So again, he came from like a mathematical engineering background as well. Um, so I was always sort of that way sort of inclined. And um, I didn't have that sort of that rebellious period where it was like, no, I'm I'm not. I'm not doing this because my dad does it and, and, and push back from, from that sense. Um, and then put, you know, mascara on and, um, rebel in that sort of way. Um, I was always sort of quite open to it. And as I say, I love sport, love playing sport, love training, exercising. So it was once, I, once I'd, I'd made peace with the fact that squash wasn't going to be a full-time career for me. And I went to university instead of going full-time as a squash player. Once I sort of accepted that, um, you know, working in sport was what I wanted to do. And the next best thing to be in professional athlete was working in, in professional sport. And so, you know, how could I be a hanger on and still be involved in pro sport and analysis seemed to offer, a, you know, a good pathway to do that if I wasn't able to actually compete myself, mm. you know. So so it has evolved quite a lot, hasn't it? I mean, I, I remember it as the sort of notational analysis um, mm. and match analysis, and then it's sort of, got a bit grander in its terms of performance analysis and um wh- where's the where would you say the the industry's at now in terms of its sort of evolution because so many teams have taken on analysts um mm. i think with variable influence in terms of mm. how much difference analysts can can potentially make but can you can you give us a bit of a state of the nation where is it at yeah i i think it's at a really interesting and i would say this exciting uh, period in its evolution when, when i look back like you say to you know where it began as you know notation back in the 80s 90s to where it is now i usually sort of chunk it up as three eras really so that sort of notational analysis era 80s 90s um where a lot of the delivery on the ground to teams athletes was done by researchers or undergraduates or students or people who just left and were still very connected to the research. And so a lot of it was notational analysis. A lot of it was founded in, 
you know, good scientific principles. A lot of it was supported by universities. Back then, there weren't that many, you know, full-time standalone jobs. Often it was, you know, part-time or uh, research grants or, 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 as I say, like the, the department, the CPA at UIC back in the day, um, offering opportunities for students to get work experience working with some of the, the clients that they had. And But it was very much notational analysis. It was collecting data. It was um, tagging video, aggregating it, feeding it back. Then I feel like the, the second era over the sort of the 2000s, early 2000s, um, as sort of technology advanced and accelerated and we moved away from, um, you know, very much away from analog and more into the digital age and the availability of video and the internet and the ability to move video quickly and, and a lot more easily meant that analysts suddenly had to had to take that sort of uh, technological advancement in terms of their skill set as well. Um, and as you've seen, sort of, Steve, over the years, anything that's plugged in uh, within a team usually becomes the performance analyst's uh, problem. And it usually sort of gets stumped on them, whether it's their skill set or not. So whether it's wireless <laughs> networks, whether it's a printer, whether it's an iPhone, an iPad, if it plugs in and needs uh, needs power, it suddenly becomes the analyst's problem. So they end up, they ended up, having to pick up little bits of knowledge in loads of areas around software, around hardware, around um, wirelessly pushing video, around networking, around connectivity, all these different things. So that sort of second year in the, in the 2000s meant that, you know, analyst skill sets broadened um, and they became almost polymaths. You know, they had a little bit of knowledge about loads of different areas and perhaps some of the, you know, the depth of analysis that was happening in the, in the 90s and, you know, when I look back at some of the analysis, late 90s, early 2000s, around perturbations, around momentum, that never really got progressed, I don't think, you know, over the 2000s that much. It didn't certainly become that sort of commonplace because, and again, this is just my sort of view on it, certainly not um, gospel or anything, was that analysts started to get spread quite thin and covering off lots of different areas and how to, you know, connect with physios, how to connect with strength industry coaches, how to give them some data and bits and pieces. And then I feel that we're, we've just come into sort of a third era now in the, in the last sort of couple of years where um, analysts are, be, are becoming less jack of all trades because people are recognising the different skill sets for these different roles. And you sort of touched on it now as the industry's expanded and it's become, you know, far more well-established. You've got lots of different roles. So you have, data scientists, data engineers, data analysts, uh, software developers, and technology specialists, you know, and all these more specific roles have started coming in. And actually, the the analyst on the ground who is the interface with the coaches and the athletes and, and delivering uh, training and in, in matches and, and holding that that sort of key stakeholder relationship, that, that coach and athlete relationship, which is still the critical part of all of the all of these areas, that, that key bit in terms of landing the message. They're, they're now often coordinating a, a larger team and they have specialists, whether they're full-time or consultants or external or third parties or whatever, but they have specialists delivering across these areas, whether it's around engineering the data so it's all aligned across the multiple data sets that could be tracking data, event data, heart rate data, uh, power data, whatever that is. Then you have, you know, might have a software developer who then builds a platform to visualize that data for you. And then you have a data scientist building a model for you to, to, to leverage, you know, new insights from that data. It's not expect the analyst or the lead analyst mm. isn't expected to be able to deliver those things, all those things anymore. So they've got specialists feeding into them. So they're almost becoming more, you know, coordinators or uh, technology coordinators, managers, pulling these specialists together to then make sure that they're answering the performance questions from the front line. And they're that sort of conduit between the front line and, and, you know, a team that, you know, you start to see building up within organisations and clubs there. And that is, again, that's a real shift in the role. But the exciting thing is, is that I think we can start going deep again in each of those, in each of those areas, in each of those verticals, to use a bit of management speak. So we can start going deeper in terms of the types of analysis that we're doing because we have a specialist working on it. We go deeper in the types of models that we're building. And the way that we're visualizing it, because we've got specialists doing it, we're not we're not spread as thin anymore. So I think we're at a really exciting period where actually we need to reconnect a lot more with universities and research and, and partners to start driving the level of analysis that's delivered in all these areas, to start driving new insights and new learning and analyzing the data in different ways, because the industry now has the resource again to do it. 
if that makes sense. And I think we're now getting on top of the technology a bit more to now drive the actual analysis bit. And you know, to me, that's the exciting bit. You know, the, the technology is just there to facilitate the quality of the insights and the analysis that you can drive from that, that you then feed back to the coaches and the athlete on the ground to then have that positive impact on performance. That's the exciting bit. And I think we're now at a point where we're ready to start driving that forward again and start analysing, you know, data in new ways. And, you know, you're starting to see it happening on, you know, shows that match of the day and in the newspapers and some of the metrics that are starting to show now are a bit bit more sophisticated um, and require some more calculation. But I think there's an opportunity now for things to really sort of push on. In the, in the next few years, in the, in the depth and detail of analysis that's been delivered. You, you mentioned a word there that I'd like to pick up on, but I'll park it for now. And that was about kind of conduit in terms of the role of communicating the insights that people might have. So I'll, I'll, if I can bookmark mm. that and come back to it, because I think that's, that's important. So many, so many practitioners that I talk to, they've, they've got some information, but they're working with opinion and well, mm-hmm. I reckon this. Okay, well, the data says something yeah. different. And so I'll come back to that if I could. But yeah, um, sure. we're in the middle of the Euros at the moment. Um, what would a top setup look like? Um, kind of give us a bit of a look behind the curtain as to what would a, what would a, you know, a nation that's investing in analysis, what sort of mm-hmm. profiles would they have on teams? What sort of setup would they have? So they... Um, for the well-established um, teams that are competing in the Euros now, they would have quite an extensive sort of setup, and that would sort of be divided into two areas. They're, they're on the ground team that's working with with the coaches and the athletes day in day out, delivering the video feedback and the data feedback, and those sort of relationship holders, um, and working with the team on the ground. And then, but then they would be supported by a remote team, either you know on site somewhere or you know during. These sort of COVID times, it will probably be back at HQ, wherever HQ is, that would be getting all the footage back in from UEFA for all the other matches that are going on. They would be constantly updating their opposition team profiles as the tournament goes on, depending on who they might get in the in the last 16, um, then the last eight semis final. So they'll have a, a bank of uh, team and individual profiles that they've been working on for the previous number of months. And then they're adding in the games as they go on over the tournament. And obviously, given the volume of games that happens during the group stages, there'll be a huge amount of work going on remotely, as well as on the ground with the team. And then whoever is managing that sort of, you know, data collection, report collation, um, insight driving process remotely would then feed that back to the team on the ground as and when they need it to prepare for training, for selection, for opposition analysis. You know, and, and they'll be going into huge amounts of detail around the teams as a whole in terms of how they operate in their, in their game states, how they like to uh, use the ball in possession, how they like to, you know, uh, force pressure on the opposition out of possession, and then what individuals do in each of those game states as well and what their individual contribution is in each of those game states. So, you know, in counter-attack, who are the players that, uh, you know, uh, perhaps have the most one, 1v1s or the most take-ons or break the most defensive lines with their passing in counter-attack. Those are the guys that you've really got to go and put pressure on as soon as you turn the ball over or whatever it is. But there'll be huge amounts of team-based and individual-based analysis going on. And then, of course, uh, lots of penalty analysis going on, uh, which is obviously a hot topic in, in, in this country over the years. Um, and they'll be going back over you know hundreds of penalties for each of those nations, depending on what players might be on the pitch at any one time against that team to know exactly what the profile of each player is when taking the penalty. Um, so there'll be huge, huge volumes of work that will have been going on for months. Um, and, and quite often that will also be done with with some, some of the coaches as well. So maybe some of the coaches of the age group teams might help with some of the opposition analysis and opposition sort of scouting as they would, you know, sort of call it back in the day. Um, but add a bit more of the subjective nature to it that you just touched on there with the objective data that all the analysts are collecting on those opposition nations. And then it's, a, you know, it's, it's an amalgamation of the two. And, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in the fact that we never want to lose sort of coaches' intuition or, or mm. gut instinct as much as, you know, I like data and I want to have objective evidence and fact. You know, coaching intuition is built up over 20, 30 years of experience of watching the same patterns play out over and over again. And we, we never want to lose that. 
So it's that sort of, I'd always say it's a data supported environment rather than data led because you need to marry the two together, I feel. And at times coaches intuition for what is right for a performance or a team, you know, can be incredible and they can absolutely cut right to the, to the nub of what is needed for that, for that performance. Uh, But at the same time, like you say, the data might throw up something they don't realize is happening. So I think, you know, again, for the, those advanced nations who are preparing, they'll be merging the two together in terms of, you know, coaches feedback on how certain teams play and, you know, what the, what the key, key things are with then hopefully the data to support that or or throw up a couple of things that that they might not have realized are going on. And you've been in those big competitions, whether it's with England rugby, et cetera, uh, and, and, and many other setups. When does it kind of get distilled down? So that volume of work that you talk about that could be years mm. in the making, it could be highly processed during during the, the competition phases. So you've got files upon files that you're drawing upon or or in the moment creating. Where does it, what's a typical sort of insight in terms of the so what when it gets boiled mm. down into, okay, so our next opposition is is this team so what 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 do Mm. you typically um or how do you work with a with a head coach or lead coach in that in that way do you have to have an agreed mechanism of communication and and then how are you sorting the priorities of the message because i guess there's a there's a top Mm. line and then there's probably 100 points below it yeah yeah absolutely and there's like you say there will be an agreed sort of process for that um almost filtering of the data to a point where it's in a state for the coaches to be able to engage with it. And again, you know, I'll come back to this relationship piece a lot that we, you know, that we touched on and that, that conduit. And, you know, the quality of the work that you deliver to those coaches, I believe is almost directly proportional to the quality of the relationship that you've got with them and understanding their coaching philosophy, understanding what they're trying to get out of that individual or team performance on the field of play. And, once you've got that understanding and that empathy of what they're trying to deliver, you can then tailor the analysis to what they, you know, to the, to the world as, as they see it to support what they're trying to achieve on the pitch and agree, you know, well in advance. And like you say, it would be months, years in advance, agree on, you know, what key performance indicators they like to measure the game by for different aspects of the game. And again, you know, there'll be multiple coaches within each of these teams taking care of different areas of the game, you know, in possession, out of possession, set piece, goalkeepers, um, et cetera. So, uh, you know, you need to have that that level of understanding of each of those areas of the game. And there may be multiple analysts that help support with that and, and manage those relationships and understand how they want to measure performance across each of those areas, how they want it delivered back, how they want it visualised. Do they want video with it? Do they like a table of data? Do they like graphs? Do they want it presented, you know, like you say, in, in the sort of formal presentation of a keynote? Uh, or do they just want a, a report that's printed out? There'll be all sorts of different nuances. And there's no right or wrong way. It's just what works for that environment and for that coaching team. Um, and I've worked with coaches over the years who want it printed out. You know, they want it in, in a hard, old school hard copy. Other ones want it just as a, a PDF or someone to, as a video database with the notes over the video. Um you know, some coaches are happy just going through a big table of data and they want to pick it out themselves. Others want, you know, graphs, nice pictures, and then, you know, the key points um, pulled out from it by the analysts. Everyone sort of operates differently. And again, it's, it's adapting your methodologies and your processes and finding a process that works for that environment. And even within the same sport, you know, methodologies and processes will be totally different uh, within soccer, within rugby. And it's, it's then the skill and it's almost the art of it, the art um, of the analyst to build that relationship, understand how they can have the most impact on uh, decision-making within their environment and how to deliver the messaging in the, in the way that resonates. And, and, and how are you in that environment, Mike? I mean, I, uh, I'm sure there's a couple of moments where it's been a bit hairy, where you've got to deliver a message that goes against the, a coach's thought and opinion. Um, how, how's that gone for you over your career? <laughs> Uh, you know, good and bad, good and bad. Um, it, 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 it usually boils down to the trust that coach has in your, your experience, your, your opinion, you know, the, the hours of time that you've put in with them, uh, whether that's pouring over data, pouring over video, 
pouring wine or beer in the bar late at night, talking things through, chewing the fat. And all, the, all of these things are important. And all of these things add to the relationship and add to the trust. Um, because, you know, certainly in camp and in big competitions like this, whether it's a Euros, a World Cup, an Olympic Games, um, a tour, you know, whatever it is, you're spending so much time with these guys, so much time with these people that, you know, th that relationship and that rapport and that trust is absolutely critical. And the more they trust you, the more receptive they will be to to perhaps something that they, they didn't realise was going on or perhaps something that they don't really want to hear about how things are going. Um, and, and as I say, that, that's, that's a huge trust piece and that's not something that, that happens overnight. It, it's about investing, you know, any good relationship. You've got to invest part of yourself. You've got to invest emotionally. You've got to invest time and build that relationship. It's not just going to happen overnight because, you know, I've suddenly been, been appointed as an analyst with a team Therefore, the coach is going to respect me. You know, that, that just doesn't happen in the real world. You've got to, you know, you've got to start at ground zero and build it up over time and, and invest part of yourself. And the more that you, you invest emotionally and technically in it, I think, you know, my experience is the more that they'll respect you for that and be receptive of, of messaging that, that you, you have. And, you know, you look back over the years of some of the, you know, tougher conversations that I've had to sit through and we've, you know, massively changed how, how trading looks. Um, in rugby previously because what we were doing was ineffective and it wasn't actually affecting anything on match day and it wasn't influencing how the team were performing on match day so we had to completely revamp certain areas of training and again having that conversation with evidence you know with data to support it with with video to support it and done in a manner that you know you know will resonate with that coach you got to put all those sort of pieces together to then you know have those sort of tougher conversations um, but it usually boils down to again that that relationship. So so trust through data and wine. So just in summary, yeah, uh, yeah, so pretty if much. If you're going to present yeah, yeah. data, try and try and try and build it in with some wine. Yeah, bring a bottle of Pinot Noir into the meeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that usually <laughs> that usually trust. instead of a, a waxy seal, there's just a ring stain on the on the, on the report. <laughs> on the report, exactly. Um, uh, I've lost my train of thought now. So what? So, um, <laughs> Thinking about wine, aren't you? I was going to ask you for a, for a practical example there. So could you give us? Mm. So for the those that are listening and and are familiar with performance analysis, then then perhaps it will it will just ignite their interest. But those who might not yeah. be, what would what would be an example of where you've worked through either a, a, a question that's that's been presented by a coach and or you've kind of gone off and and created an insight mm. out of your own making because you've spotted an opportunity. Could you, yeah. could you sort of take us through from where you sort of started through to the observation, through to the change and in intervention and what, how that might've manifested itself on a, on the pitch or on the track? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll elaborate on sort of the example that I just sort of touched on then. Um, so this is working with, um, England rugby a few years ago and, um, Again, there's a lot of unit coaches in rugby, just to give a little bit of context to it. There's a lot of unit coaches. Um, you have someone who's in charge of attack generally, someone's in charge of defence, someone's in charge of set piece, possibly someone who's in charge of set piece and forwards. But anyway, there's there's quite a few different sort of specialist coaches. Uh, and working with the the forwards and, and set piece coach, um, yeah, I'd been analysing all the lineouts that we do in training, you know, over a period of time. And we every week we're doing hundreds and hundreds of lineouts, and we've got this big you know, huge lineup playbook and we've got all these different options but then you know on match day we're only ever using a fraction of that playbook and you know the, the the historic way of thinking was oh we need to have all these options so that depending on what the opposition you know line up against us we've got tons of options and loads of different movements and loads of different setups so that we can fool them and, and win the ball easily all right okay and again you know I mean, not been a high level rugby player or anything like that. It took me time to build up sort of credibility with sport. Um, so I, I was analysing all these, you know, lineouts in training and every single one I'd be tagging, you know, what the formation is, how many players are in it, who threw the ball, who jumped, who lifted, and what the movement of all the lifters was, what the delivery was and then what we play on the back. So I had all this data, you know, over, over years on the lineouts. And 
our performance on match day was never really changing that much. So it was a bit of a performance question um, around, you know, why, given all the time and energy we put into it, um, why is performance not really fluctuating that much in match day? But also from a medical point of view, you know, you've got some really large gentlemen being thrown up in the air, landing really heavily on the ground, you know, hundreds of times a week, which, you know, can't be good for their the longevity of their careers. So that was sort of another performance question, you know, do we need to be doing this much line-out work given the wear and tear this is having on ankles, knees, backs, uh, so on and so forth. So we did an analysis of it. We, you know, we worked out, you know, how many different lineups we were practicing each week, the percentage of those are actually being used at a weekend on a Saturday. And it was absolutely ridiculous. It was like 9% or something. So we gradually started stripping back the amount of lineups that we had in the playbook the amount of line-out jumps that we were doing during the week over a period of time and obviously measuring performance. There was no sort of drop-off in performance, even though we were stripping back the amount of line-outs that we had and popular thinking was that we needed all these line-outs to pull the defence. We it wasn't affecting our win rate or delivery rate or quality of ball at the weekend, which was great. So we managed to cut back over a, over a, a tournament the amount of line-out reps that we were doing. And I think by the end of the tournament, the second rows we're doing half the number of line-out jumps per week than they were doing at the start of the tournament, which if you're 125 kilos or 115 kilos, you know, your knees, your joints <laughs> and everything are very thankful for that. And I think, you know, they'll be very thankful for that into their sort of 30s and, and mid-30s if they're, if they're still playing. Um, and it's just reducing that load and wear and tear that the medics and the strength and condition coaches were thankful for. They could get back into you know recovery protocol quicker. They didn't have the same uh, inflammation around joints and things, and it didn't actually affect performance. Um, but it, it it took you know a lot of data. Um, it took you know a lot of trust for the coach to you know start stripping back his area, because you know what you know you know what coaches are like. They want to coach, don't they? And particularly uh, like with England rugby, it's really tough because they only get three blocks a year to actually do some coaching. So you've got Autumn International, Six Nations, Summer Tour. The rest of the time, they're not coaching. So as soon as they're in camp, they want to coach. We want to coach, we want to coach. Let's coach more players. Let's have as much time on the grass as we can. Plus, the fact you only get players two weeks before your first test match. You've got a lot of information to cram into those guys in two weeks. You've got essentially six training sessions and 10 meetings to get all the information in before playing a test match, potentially against New Zealand or whatever. So everyone's very conscious of, of trying to maximise all the sessions. And so it's very easy to get carried away and and just do too much and and put too much load on on, on the players and try and cram too much information in. So it's a balance. It's, you know, it's, it's a really tough balancing act and it's, it's not very easy. So again, it took a you know, very open-minded, a very receptive coach to actually strip back yeah. his coaching time, strip back the amount of uh, reps that he was doing, a lot of confidence that this was the right thing to do and that it's not going to, actually affect performance at the weekend. If anything, you know, performance across those lineouts was was better in match play because we were practicing more specific ones that then became better drilled and everybody was more comfortable with the roles because they had a, a you know a smaller playbook to learn. Mm. So we came a lot more targeted, a lot more focused. It was a lot more about if we execute everything correctly at the weekend, even if they read what lineout we pulled our execution, the fact that we know exactly where it's going and the quality of our throw, the quality of our lift, the quality of our jump, the quality of our body position means that we should win it anyway. So it's more about backing our process, backing our techniques, backing our drill to win it versus anyone uh, and having that, that, that small list, which, again, a lot of the players were thankful for because it was less stuff to learn in, in a two-week window. So there was lots of sort of positives on the back of it. Um, but as I say, it took a lot of you know data to underpin that to show you know, what fraction of the playbook we're actually using, what fraction of the playbook was working, and then the confidence of the coach to start pairing it back and, and, and being more targeted. Mm. I love that example. And that's actually quite a challenging one in that sense, even though it you didn't have a, a, a sort of a gold medal kind of end to that in terms of, mm. and therefore they were able to up the improvement. It's actually, it's actually almost more... Uh, challenging for the coach just to break that tendency of uh, just do one more, just do one more. Yeah, uh, that absolutely a bit of a security blanket around. Oh, I've just got that comfort of volume mm. that, that the players are doing, and we're sort of throwing lots at them. When actually the 
retention of the the skill, the pattern, yeah. probably is deteriorated because of that noise. Um, yeah. Could could you um, could you give me a version that's got the gold medal finish <laughs> in <laughs> terms of just that? <laughs> maybe maybe one that that frustrated the Aussies or the French in cycling or um, oh there we go yeah, yeah. You, you, um, you can make it nice and old if you want to in terms of uh, the, the the insight in terms of not giving away any intellectual property. Uh, how, how right, I'll, I'll give you. I'll along. give you a cycling one on. um, against the French. Then, um, so um, this was back in 2006. So this is this is an old. This is a retro one. This is, I think it, the world was still black and white back then. Um, so we were we were working with the uh, match sprint cyclists, um, and just previously the the men's kilo had been mm. dropped from Beijing. So all the all the sprint cyclists, so Chris Foy, Craig and Clean, um, Jason Queeley, um, had to start doing match sprints, yeah. which they hadn't done since they were juniors. So they were, you know, they were getting sort of up to speed with that. They're obviously, you know, hugely powerful, hugely talented athletes, but perhaps didn't have the uh, tactical uh, knowledge that some of the, you know, the, the riders who've been riding that event for a long time would have. So. Um, We'd we started working sort of full time with British Cycling in two thousand and four, um, and uh, maybe a year or so after that, we started building up sort of sprint profiles of opposition riders and, and British riders to help with this sort of tactical understanding. And so we broke down all of the match sprint races, which, if you know, if people haven't seen it before, it's a three laps or cat and mouse race. First first rider over the line wins. But it's very tactical. They tend to go slowly for the first lap, and everyone watching it is going, "Why are you so slow?" Um, and then sometimes someone will make a break really sort of quickly. But they're they're trying to outmaneuver their opponent, trying to gain the high ground on the track, trying to get in their slipstream, and use all those sorts of things to try to to win the race. So anyway, as as had been sort of done over a lot of other sports, we sort of profiling the sprint riders and their tendencies in terms of what they would do on lap one, lap two, lap three. When they attacked, where would they attack from on the track? Did they like to lead? Did they like to follow? Um, how long did they attack for? What was their average attack duration? How long would they be out the saddle for? What foot would they generally attack with? And all of these riders had sort of tendencies in these areas, as, as we all do. We all are uh, under pressure. We all revert to type. And so we could build up some quite detailed profiles of these opposition riders. And um, Craig McLean got to the semi-final of the World Championships, or fi- no, finally, the World Championships in 2006, and he was against Mikhail Borga, French sprinter, hugely successful. Uh, he'd, he'd won World Championships before and far more experienced at the match sprint, been doing it for years, and heavy, heavy favourite. However, we built up a really stable profile of Mikhail Borga, and again, going back to sort of the, the research days, you know, creating norms of profiles and understanding when certain KPIs and metrics stabilize is again something that you don't see that often anymore. But again, it's an important piece of work and so hopefully something that we start going back to. But anyway, we've done stabilization of indicators and, and things like that and looked at each of them. And Borgan had a really stable profile. And um, when you say stable profile, he always, you mean he's quite predictable? Yeah, yeah. very predictable. He always attacked the same foot. Uh, I think it was 80% of the time he, he attacked from the same part of the track. Um, his average um, sort of attack duration was very consistent. Um, uh, and it was always, he always liked to attack on the back straight of lap three, at the start of the back straight from as high as possible. So with Craig McLean being a kilo rider traditionally, um, and obviously this takes huge amounts of skill from the athlete and the coach, the tactic was to, to wind the race up earlier to make it a speed endurance one rather than a um, acceleration or a quickness race. So rather than allowing Borgan to, to lead the attack on the, on the third lap, uh, Craig's tactic was to wind it up a lot earlier, don't let him get in front and just dictate the pace to him. Um, and so we had this profile built, we had the tactics ready um, we did. We looked at the video of his previous rounds uh, at the World Championships with Craig in, in track centre. Again, he'd been he'd been really consistent in the way that he'd, he'd raced them. Um, everybody was happy to go with the sort of race tactics. So um, they were signed off by you know the coaches. This this was the tactics for the race. 
Uh, and obviously, it's a best of three, so we had to do it uh, three times. And he ended up winning. He won the race 2-1, but the third heat, he won by one thousandth of a second. Um, and whether, you know, whether the, the race tactics and the tactical game plan made that much of a difference, I don't know. But he stuck, to, fair play, he stuck to the plan for each of the three races. It worked two out of the three times and, and the, he won the, won the gold medal that year. Um, so that was, that was a fantastic uh, example of them implementing a tactical game plan based on opposition profiling that, you know, we can never say whether it made a thousandth of a difference or half a thousandth of a difference, but hopefully it contributed to, to, to Craig winning that medal in that, in that World Championships. One thousandth of a second. I mean, it, it probably he's just completely flogged, having led that out really early and just drained his yeah. aerobic system. Um. Yeah, oh, absolutely buried. Yeah, you know, like you say, um, just fell off the bike at the end of it. Um, and, I mean, done it three times in a row as well. So yeah, fair play to him. Fair play to him. And. And in terms, I've still of, got a photo. I've still got a photo. The photo of the photo finish. I'm almost picturing it. I, I think I've seen it actually a, a couple of times. But um, but in terms of those objective sports where you know there's a line out that's quite an, a, a controlled aspect yeah, yeah. of the uh, of rugby um, uh, match sprint and and so on. That's quite uh, a controlled environment. When, when sports have higher levels of subjectivity around them, whether that's judging, whether that's the, the influence of referees, how, mm. how much can analysis play a part in that where, say, you know, if you go to different environments as a boxer, if you go to South America or if you go to, uh, if you go to Asia, there's going to be boxing styles that are appreciated more than others you're going to have a referee mm. who might like to take early control of a match. How much does analysis have an input to, to those areas too? Yeah, it's really interesting that the variety of, um, you know, external internal influences over, over sort of sports. And like you say, at one end of the spectrum, you've got really analyzable, what's the word sports like cycling, where you can put, you know, a force dynamometer anywhere and a probe anywhere and collect whatever data you want, and what you what you see in a lab, you know, translates almost directly to what you see on the track or on the road. Whereas other end of the spectrum, like say, you got some of the more artistic sports or sports that involve interpretation or sailing, where you've got to take into the external factors of not only weather, uh, but also their pitch is constantly moving. So um, there's all those sorts of external variables. What I think analysis even even when things are seemingly uncontrollable like referees um like um you know it, 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 like international differences and things in terms of how things are interpreted i think by analyzing those differences and having an understanding and a comprehension of those and how they can influence the outcome even if you can't necessarily affect that i i still feel it gives gives people confidence when they're out there performing, that they that they understand what they're dealing with, they understand what might be coming, uh, and then these are all things that you can then potentially practice or uh, replicate in, in training, in you know the training camp or the, the week's training beforehand. So these things don't come as a shock to them. That could then derail performance or focus or um, you know uh, how connected with the with the performance somebody is in the event. Because what you do, you want, what you don't want is you know emotion to override you know the process that is in place and you know and the performance that's going on. So you never want those things to come as a surprise. So you know every sport that I've worked in, there's always been a lot of work done on you know referee analysis, understanding what their traits are, how do they like to be spoken to, how do they like to be addressed, body language, what you know what what rules are they particularly hot on versus others, what are their preferences, you know all, all these sorts of things that you can then you can then practice in training even if it seems uncontrollable. It gives you a sense of I'm doing everything I can. And again, we're always, anytime an athlete's on the start line, we want them to feel as well prepared as possible, don't we? So even if it is, you know, it's a hostile crowd, you know, I've, I've been in training sessions where we've, you know, captured the audio from very hostile environments, played it over training at full blast and hired speakers in to try to mimic the noise and how hard it'll be to communicate and, and things like that. Um, as I say, you, you get referees to come and pretend to be other referees in, in training sessions and referee how they would. Um, 
you know, there, there are things that you can do to, to, to practice against these and get people more comfortable with them. Um, and I think, like I say, it's about making them as comfortable uh, on the start line or the, uh, the start whistle as you possibly can. And for everything, you know, every stone to have been uncovered, for every, every possible thing to be, um, to be looked into and acknowledged, there's no point not acknowledging it and then it being a surprise at the weekend. You know, I think we have to analyse all of these things as, as much as possible um, to get people as, as prepared and as comfortable with what's going to happen out there so that they can then still make good decisions under pressure, even if they feel like things aren't perhaps going their way or the opposition's getting preferential treatment or, or whatever it is. They still need to have a process that they can fall back on that allows them to keep making good decisions under pressure. Um, and to keep control of the situation and, and stay engaged with it and keep feel for, what, for what's needed. Mm. Yeah, I like that that perspective in the sense of it's, it's almost a bit like um, a heist feeling to it, where I, I remember talking to, um, to a leading medic who went into pitch for a big change in the fundamental health service and mm. went in to meet the, the minister. And they did all their homework on, mm. you know, what school they went to, what sports they liked, um, what, what were their interests. And, and that got sort of picked up into, you know, some of the small talk and mm. almost, well, here's a, here's a metaphor I've prepared earlier that just so happens <laughs> to land. Yeah, to and, resonate with them. Yeah, absolutely. But ultimately they were trying to change in, uh, a whole field and move it forward. And that was their mm. one opportunity to do that. But it gave yeah. them that, that sense of confidence. Uh, yeah. In the same way that I think they hatched the Olympic bids, or they used to before the system changed. Mm. They hatched Olympic bids of who do we need to influence and how yeah. do we influence them? What are the things that are most likely to get across the line? As opposed to just saying, look, we're great and, and hoping for the yeah. best. No, yeah, 100%. And, you know, to me, all, that's all part of, you know, performance analysis and all the all the situation things that go into performance and you know analyzing opposition coaches and their tendencies and what have they done historically and what happens when they're under pressure. And you know, with, with a lot of the international sports, they they you know the teams or the individuals compete so infrequently that that the context of every performance is really important to capture. So whether a coach is under pressure, are they on a losing streak, who the referee is, what's the condition of the pitch? Are fans in a stadium? Are fans going to be on, this, on, on the team's back because they're not playing well? Or are they going to be really supportive, really vocal? Is it going to be very hostile? You know, what's the weather? All of these external variables need to be captured in sort of your metadata of that performance that you can then analyse over time are absolutely critical. And one thing as analysts we always want to do, we always want more data. We always want to aggregate more data. We want to average it. We want to do maximums, minimums, standard deviations, variance. But by doing that, often we lose the significance, the importance of a single performance and all of the things and all the preparation and stuff that's gone into that. Um, and what we shouldn't do is overlook the, the analysis of a, of a performance on its own within the context of that performance, given, as you say, the external variables that might have been going on that day and analysing it in isolation at times as well. And whether that's through a momentum analysis or looking at the data or looking at whatever. And um, that's a really important part of the analysis as well. And by averaging and aggregating everything, sometimes we lose the significance of single performances and understanding why that performance happened the way it did that day. Um, and it, it's easy to get that loss in the, in the mass of the data that we're always trying to collect. Yeah. Interesting. So in, in January, I just started a new performance analysis solutions uh, business. Uh, called Red Zone Analysis, um, where we deliver performance analysis solutions to elite sports clients. Uh, and we do that over a number of different areas from um, you know, consultancy, a data strategy to data collection, data analysis, software development, and technology. Um, we're aiming to support elite sports clients across you know, uh, parts of those areas, or, or, or we can offer the whole thing in terms of uh, delivery across across all of those different different sectors. So I'm I'm flat out at the minute, just getting that up and running, um, doing all the stuff that you got to do to set up a business that you don't realise you need to do till you do it, which is 
uh, a bit tedious at times, but but exciting um, in that um, you know uh, we're, we're we're working with some great clients already, and and hopefully you know get some more on board in, in the near future as well. And, and very excited to to be you know do, doing our own thing and 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 doing it our way. Oh, amazing! It sounds uh, sounds excited for you, but also exciting that you're taking that to to a broader audience. Um, you you analysts always. Uh, baffle me with a unique combination of of mathematical ability and social ability um that you know that to have both <laughs> i'm not sure we all do rare. no well that's true that's what i mean it's such a, a rarity i'm not but, sure i do but um yeah. but that that in itself uh you could expand that even further i've i've had that same experience where oh, i know how to i know how to run stuff oh yeah businesses easy Blimey. easy what was that yeah. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> what what a VAT number how much oh I no appreciated all of those other people used to do all that <laughs> exactly. sort of stuff in the, in the past yeah yeah exactly and um, yeah like I say in terms of doing it our own way you know we're we're very passionate about obviously sport but we're also we also recognize we're not a data business we're not a technology business although that's what we deliver we're a people business and we're only as good as the people that work at Red Zone and we're only as good as the relationships that we got with our clients so um, we, we invest a lot in people. We lost, invest a lot in their development um, and make sure that they have all the all the tools and all the support they need to be able to deliver on the front line or, you know, or more so in the background, depending on their role, um, but also to, you know, to enjoy it. And, you know, we're, we're very privileged to work in uh, elite sport, I think, in an industry that I love and I know that you love, Steve, and we, we should never lose sight of that and we should always you know, um, savor that and, and enjoy it as much as we can. Um, because we're, we're very lucky to do so. Yeah. Well said. Great note, great note to end on. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me, Steve. Great to catch up and, uh, yeah, good luck with everything. Brilliant. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mike. You can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve. Give us a follow on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Look us up under Supporting Champions. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, then it would be amazing if you could take two minutes just to open up the iTunes app and leave us a review. What it really does is it helps the podcast become a little bit more discoverable for other people just like you. So that would be amazing. 